Right, our text this week is from Ephesians chapter 5 again, but this time we'll be looking at verses 7 and 8. So if you could turn there now. Now I don't know about you, but um, last week I, I found my sermon to be heavy going because it considered some of the darker aspects of human nature and how the Lord sees those and what he does about them. And although it is always sobering and unpleasant to think about God's wrath and hell, it is inescapable that they are just as equally part of our lives and relationship with him as are his love and mercy and grace. The Lord is a complete person and we cannot say that we fully appreciate and respect him if we just take the path that we like and ignore the rest. Happily though, Paul now takes us to a brighter place. So let's read what he has to say. Ephesians 5, and I will start reading in verse 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For once you were darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Whenever we read this word therefore, such as we see at the beginning of verse 7, we know by now that it's time to take a look backwards before we can go forwards. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Partakers with who, we might ask? Well, the sons of disobedience. And what is that disobedience? Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, idolatry. And the consequence of those? Well, no inheritance, which means no chance of heaven and receiving the full wrath of God in judgment. Okay, so Christians should not be doing the things that are named here. It seems, well, it seems very obvious, doesn't it? But actually the reason that we shouldn't be doing them is quite different. In the last sermon we did spend some time... Um, establishing that those who are saved by the blood of Jesus cannot lose that salvation. So the threat of no inheritance or salvation and the facing of God's wrath can't be the reason to avoid disobedience. So what is it? Well, (laughs) the most important answer is given to us in the following verse. But there is something else that is right here that I want to talk about. Now this word partakers is actually a very interesting word because it has this the sense of sharing in a possession. For example, this very word was used in the documents that described the joint ownership of a house in the times that this was written. Now, I I think, you know, you'd never enter into owning a house with someone else unless you knew them well, you agreed with them about how it should be run and understood what was going to happen, you know, what the implications were of of having a joint, joint ownership would be. It would never be something that happened by, by accident, would it? You know, you'd wake up one morning and discover, oh, I just discovered I own a house along with Kim.com. Never happened, would it? So when we see it here, we might recognize that the way that Christians commit these sins is done in the same spirit as those who do not know God at all. In fact, in some senses, what is done by Christians is worse because These types of sins, they are sins of commission, not omission. They are knowingly and willingly done. Those who do them have deliberately turned away from God. 
And when I say that, I mean it because you know that when you turn your back on God, he can't see what you're doing. Isn't that right? No, unfortunately it doesn't work like that. But we've turned our backs on God. We've closed our ears to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And although we know what we are doing is wrong, we're too focused on ourselves and self-gratification to stop doing those things. Now, in that moment, it might seem that... uh, you think you know what the consequences are and you've weighed it all up and you've decided that despite you know that, that you're going to go ahead and do it anyway. But do we really know what the consequences are? If we're going to be turning away from God, if we're turning away from God who is light, well, what's the opposite? What are we turning to? Darkness. We're turning towards darkness. Now, some years ago, it was part of my job to go underground into mines to see how our products were being used down there. And I think you'd be surprised about how civilized some mines are underground. There's nice concrete walls, there's bright lights, there's lots of fresh air in some places. But in other parts, when you get right up where they're working, things are really different. Because the only source of light that's there is this Minus lamp that you have on your helmet and there's a big battery on your belt and the walls are freshly blasted rock and there's this mud like this on the floor and if there's machines working around there it's all mixed up with water and oil and it's a horrible place. But from time to time I would turn off my light just to have that experience and it's not something that we often have because it, it, is, it, is, it is profoundly and utterly black you know, you hear this saying, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Well, you can't, because most of us never experience complete darkness, because there's always starlight or there's a little light from your radio or, or something. And so, what can you see? <laughs> Nothing. You can't see anything in the dark, so you don't know what's lying in wait for you there and what harm is going to be found in those shadows. And because anything is possible, you dare not move because you might, your next step might be into a big hole. So, when we deliberately walk in the shadows, it's not just a misstep, it's a backward step because it's action and movement that is completely opposite to the steps of sanctification. And what's more, it is foolishness because we take ourselves from a certain invisible path that is administered by a loving God who has our best interests at heart, to a rocky and unknown road where disaster is intended for us by Satan. And when we turn more and more into our own selves and our own motivations, we become less and less like Jesus. And this will never lead us to peace and happiness. In fact, in this dark space, we will certainly find disaster and heartache. Well, am I guilty of this kind of sin? Yes but I suspect I'm not alone. I can tell you this this little verse, when I started preparing this, I thought, what on earth am I going to say about this? What is in here? It seems so simple. But it's delivered a big wake-up call to me, and I pray that it has for you too. Beware of those sins that you commit knowingly. Thank God for his word and the truth that it gives to us. 
Anyway, however profound this little nugget might be, it was not given to us here as the principal reason for us to avoid behaving like non-Christians. And that, of course, is contained in verse 8, where Paul changes from this negative and dark motivation of avoiding sin to a much more positive one. He says, For once, well, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now these terms darkness and light are used throughout the Bible as metaphors for good and evil. In fact, of course, Scripture begins in Genesis 1 by God speaking all things into being with, let there be light, let there be light. And the Bible also speaks of light as the symbol of God's presence and righteous activity and it represents truth and goodness and God's redemptive work. But darkness, on the other hand, symbolizes error and evil and the works of Satan. So what we're reading about here is this profound change in spiritual character that has taken place in every believer and has been brought about by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. There was a time when all our spirits would know was darkness and death. But through Christ, they will know the glory of God's light and life forever. That golden shining light was definitely put there inside us. We are its children. But it is up to us to live in such a way that it is properly visible. Now, a few years ago, we had a very big classic car meeting right here in Wanganui, and there were literally hundreds of cars on display at the race course. And I'm sure that lots of us went to have a look at them. And for their owners, they were clearly objects of great value. Not necessarily because they were rare cars or desirable makes, but just because for their owner they had that very special something. And because they were special, they'd been lovingly repainted and reupholstered and chromed and polished. And for me, in some cases, that was a problem. I wonder why. Well, back in 1932, they didn't have clever paint systems like we have today. And they didn't use chrome for shiny things. They used nickel. And that fellow in the upholstery department on the sewing machine, well, he was more worried about getting his 20 seats out the door than having all those stitches exactly aligned. So if you've ever looked at a classic car and thought it didn't, you know, it doesn't look quite right, it's a bit too perfect, well, you'd be right because it isn't. And this problem hasn't gone unnoticed by the classic car fraternity. And you look at this picture of an old car up here on the screen, you might actually think that it really, really needs a coat of new paint. But that's actually exactly how its owner likes it. And it's actually the most valuable finish it could have because that's the paint that was put there 80 years ago by some craftsman, very carefully with a brush. They used to paint cars with a brush in those days. That's what's known in the trade as patina. And these days, patina and originality has become so important that for some particularly interesting cars, particularly old racing cars that have been driven by famous drivers at places like Le Mans, well, some owners are prepared to pay car restorers to painstakingly remove any extra layers of paint that have been applied over the years so that they get down to the very first coat. And when I say painstakingly... <laughs> I mean painstaking. Imagine going over a whole car to remove five or six coats of paint and not doing too much damage to the original 
coat. And then once that's done, they put a layer of clear, I call it varnish for the sake of clear understanding, they put a coat of clear varnish over to, to protect that. And the point is that the first car, the original car, has been there all along, underneath what was put there later, exactly as it came out of the factory, or exactly as it was raced eight years ago. It was just hidden by well-meaning later owners. Brothers and sisters, in that instant, that that instant, there's no time at all that we are justified by God. The moment that we become a Christian, we are remade from darkness into light. And after that's happened, that light will always stay on. It was put there by God, so no one can put it out. But unfortunately, we often do our very best to hide it away. We are afraid to let it shine because of fear of ridicule. We will hide it so that we can continue to live with our old bad habits and desires. Or perhaps we are just too lazy or ill-disciplined to let it gleam. Perhaps it is even hidden under a coat of religious zeal. And there are lots of different concealments. But that light is unquestionably there all along, just like that first coat of paint in that old car. And Paul is reminding us here about that light and how it ought to define our every action. It needs to be exposed to show its true nature and value. Light is as radically different from dark as it is possible to be. And that is how different Christians ought to be to the world. We ought to be genuine and authentic with exactly the right pattern. Now, note to the language that is used here. Paul doesn't say that we look like light. He very specifically says that we are light in the Lord and that similarly we were darkness. So what he's talking about here is a permanent and profound change in substance, not just appearance. We have not merely been made to look pretty. We have been completely reconstructed from the ground up. Saved from the kingdom and form of utter darkness and death to the body of perfect light and life. And since that is so, why should we continue to behave like we were still darkness? Because we aren't anymore. No, says Paul, you are now light. Walk like light. Who's heard the saying here, tripping the light fantastic? Is that, is that something? Yeah, some people have heard it. And for those of you who haven't, it just simply means to dance nimbly or lightly. And I won't try to show you. And just for your fun of useless information, it's actually a very old saying. It seems to have come from a poem by Milton written in 1645. And for some reason, it's stuck around for 500 years nearly. It's amazing. Anyway, I reckon it's a very fine description of what Paul instructs here, that in the scriptural sense, we ought to be tripping the light fantastic. And the fantastic light that we should trip is not our own, of course. It's God's. And his image is associated many times with light in scripture in the most soaring and glorious of ways. Here's just a couple that I, that I pulled up. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. 1 Timothy 6. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to be to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. It is impossible for any human to imagine or even face the glory of the Lord. And we have two illuminating encounters described in the story of Moses. The first is in Exodus 33, where Moses asks God to show him his glory. And the Lord says, Okay, I'll do that, but you should know that no one can see me face to face and live. So, he puts Moses in a safe place in a crack in a rock and covers him with his hand until he passes by. And only then does the Lord remove his hand and allow Moses to see his back as he moves away. That must have been an amazing experience. And the second is in Exodus 35, where after receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down from Mount Zion. He's been talking to God for some time. And he returns to the Israelites' camp unaware that his face is shining. It's shining so much that people are terrified, and he is forced to wear a veil. Imagine, that's the effect of just the reflected glory of God. And for those of you who've wondered where this idea of a halo comes from, well, it's actually from this experience. Now, it might seem that we know these stories well and they're better suited to Sunday school. But the reason that I'm using them today is to show that we are called to a very, very high standard of behaviour. If we are, as Paul writes here, to walk as children of light, then well, we ought to be sure that we know what it looks like. God's light is extraordinarily pure. Extraordinarily. It's a, it's a word that we don't use very much or perhaps appreciate enough because it's, it's beyond ordinary. It's pure and brilliant. God's light is never muddied or dimmed. It has a very special quality and I'm going to use an unusual word here which is actinic. God's light is actinic. By definition, actinic light is a high-energy light that does stuff. It affects photographic film, or it makes photosynthesis happen, or it stimulates some kinds of animals and plants that are light-sensitive. And maybe to give you a better idea, it's also a term that you could use to describe the brilliant blue-white light that is produced by the fusion processes of a star, or maybe the arc light from a welding plant. It's never a quiet or passive sort of light. It's active. It provides the energy to make things happen. I know that the the idea of a dark room is slowly being consigned to the mists of history thanks to digital photography, but back in the day when people used dark rooms a lot, well, you'd have a red or a green light in there because they didn't affect the film. They weren't actinic. And those colors, they, they won't help plants to grow. But actinic light from further up the light spectrum, well, it does do these things. And I think that's a fantastic illustration of the power of the God, of God's glory. Because there's no way you'd ever see God's light and say, 
Oh, look, there's God's glory. And then you turn around to see something more interesting like a twig. (laughs) There's no way that could happen. If you saw God's glory like Moses, you would be transfixed. You would be destroyed, overcome. Your very face would shine. And this, friends, is what we are the children of. Not some feeble candle, but a brilliant and perfect lighthouse. It makes you think, doesn't it, that your behavior ought to be like the light from a lighthouse that's visible for miles and miles. So let's investigate what that light might look like. And so I've, I've found a list of attributes that are given, of light that are given to us by scripture. Let's quickly run through them and, and see what these say about how to walk as children of light. So firstly, God's light is white and pure. Now white has been a color that's long associated with purity. Even ancient civilizations like the Greeks, Greeks and Romans saw white that way. And even today, studies show that it is the color most often associated with things like innocence and perfection. Goodness, honesty, cleanliness, beginnings, new stuff, and exactitude. (laughs) I'd say that's a great list of Christian virtues to aspire to right off the bat. Has everyone who has ever washed a sheet or tried to paint a fence with white paint or whitewashed nose, there are actually many, many shades of white. But really none of them are white. It's just that, on its own, pure whiteness is the most revealing of colors. It shows the most tiniest stain or mark. And this is why it is appropriate that this is the color of God. He is perfectly pure and holy. There is not one tiny spot or stain, and the brilliant whiteness of his being testifies to that, because if there was any mark at all, it would immediately be seen. And this too is his aspiration for us that we would labor while we live to avoid the stains on our character that are caused by sinfulness. Then God's light is bright. Now Joe and I, we have two reading lights at the head of our bed. And they have a nice useful little knob on them that enables us to adjust them from just a faint glow to, well, positively blinding. And that glow is useful when I come to bed later than Joe and she wants to go to sleep. But it is absolutely useless for reading or precise work. Because low levels of light will only just allow us to see shapes and outlines. There's no detail. And there's every possibility for misunderstanding what we see and what we do as a consequence. But God's light is bright. It fills every space and it reveals every detail so that nothing is hidden or misunderstood. Truth is truth, and a lie is a lie, and sin can be nothing other than what it is. And this is the lifestyle that God requires of us as his children. This is why we read of this in James 5, for example. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes, And you'll know, no. Christians ought to be people whose words and actions are 
to be trusted completely because we always walk in that bright and revealing light. God's light is shining. I see a couple of helpful pictures in this idea of a, a shining light. And the first thing is that it, it comes out, doesn't it? It radiates from its source. And that's a great picture of God. He is the source of all light, all life, all hope. In fact, everything that we can perceive with our senses flows from him. But this is not a light that we ourselves can produce because it is only the Lord who is capable of such a perfect light. But what we can do is we can reflect that light. And this is the second way that things can shine. The cleaner and more perfectly smooth that an object is, the brighter it will shine in the light. And this is our part, to join with the Holy Spirit in the work of sanctification to make our lives so clean and shiny that they perfectly reflect the brilliant light of God. And as we shine with that light, so the world will see the glory of the Lord and the greatness of his salvation. God's light is diffusive. Now this thing in my hand, it looks like a gun. And I'm going to use it to shoot the people who I saw sleeping in the back just now. Well, actually it's a thing called a pyrometer. And I can point it at a surface and it will tell me what the temperature is. So today, the temperature of the lectern here is 22 degrees. I'm sure you're edified. But it also has a, a laser. Okay, you can see that up on the wall there. And the purpose of that laser dot is for me to know exactly what I'm pointing at because if there's a bunch of different things close together, well, I need to be sure which one I'm taking the temperature of. And laser bright lights are interesting. They're actually very bright for the amount of power that you put into them. And they are that way because the light has been arranged in such a way that is what is known as coherent. And that's to say that it's pretty much all going in the same direction at the same time. But this word diffusive that I've used is the opposite, actually. It means that it's light that's doing exactly the opposite. It's, it's, it means capable of spreading every way by flowing widely or widely reaching or copious. And that's exactly how, how it is with the light of God's glory. Because there is nowhere in creation that God's light cannot be found. It is everywhere. Everywhere. And there's just an important theological note that I want to make here. This is never to say that God's light is weakened, weakened by its spread or that perhaps there is more of his presence in some places than others. The amazing fact is that God is fully present and fully able with all of his power at every point in creation and at every moment. Now, depending on the state of your conscience, you might either find this to be either a tremendous comfort or a terrible worry. However, the truth is that in some way God does spread his blessing to everyone, believers and unbelievers. His reign falls on both the just and the unjust, and we all benefit from the ensuing harvest. 
If this diffusive generosity to both sinners and saved is the example that is given to us by our Heavenly Father, then how can we not follow it? The grace that has been given to us by God was given to be held to ourselves. Oh, nobody said no. Of course not. It's meant to be passed on. It's meant to be diffused, not just to the people that we like or think might deserve it, but it's to be given generously to the, all that are around us. And this is just one more way of how we are to walk as children of light. God's light is excellent. This verse in Ecclesiastes says that light excels darkness. In other words, the light of God is superior to all of the qualities of darkness. Always. Light reveals the path. It makes plain the motives. Darkness, on the other hand, hides the footfalls beside the path and obscures the features of those that we meet so that we don't know whether they intend us to for help or harm. Light brings growth and life. Darkness brings sickness and death. Light is truth. Darkness is falsehood. And of course I could go on for some time with these, these examples, couldn't I? But the fact is that spiritual darkness has nothing at all to offer of any true value. I want to ask you a question. What do you aim to leave behind as the evidence of your existence here on earth? Is it going to be an openness of spirit, a revealing of the way, truth, and justice and hope, life and light, or will maybe be something darker? I was having a discussion at the dinner table with my family a few days ago about my friend and countryman Robert Mugabe. Zimbabwe ought to be a wealthy and successful nation filled with prosperous and happy people. Why? <laughs> because it is so blessed. Now we call our home New Zealand God's own. And it is a truly marvellous place, but I promise you that Zimbabwe has, maybe I should say had, much more of almost everything. The agricultural potential there is fantastic. We used to grow wheat, maize, tobacco, cotton, all kinds of small things. Flowers put in an aeroplane every morning, flown to Amsterdam, sold there in the flower market and they were on somebody's desk the next day. Tourism. Victoria Falls is magnificent. Kariba is a man-made lake that is 350 kilometers long and 50 kilometers wide. Fantastic game parks like minor pools where you can get out of your car and go and walk around with lion and elephant. You might think I'm crazy, but I've got to tell you, that is one of the most amazing experiences that you can have. Tremendous fishing. Minerals, gold, diamonds, platinum, chrome, nickel, copper, coal. All in abundance. A healthy, well-educated and hard-working people. Zimbabwe ought to be a place that people are fighting to live in, not fighting to get out of. And why does that way? Well, it's because Mr. Mugabe chose 
darkness. He had an opportunity to go down in history as a great man, a liberator of his people, as well respected as a man like Nelson Mandela. And yet he chose personal power and wealth and now millions of people suffer daily by his hand. How will history remember him now? Only as a man of darkness. God's light is excellent. And where its light falls, there grows more of the same. There is more excellence. If we walk as children of light, then our legacy will be an excellent one. God's light is agreeable. Ecclesiastes 11. God's light is a pleasure to be in. This verse says, Truly the light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. There's a chap that I see around town from time to time and frankly, (laughs) he terrifies me. He's got so many tattoos on his face that you can't actually see what any of them are now. It's just a blurred blue mess. And I've never ever seen him smile. He just looks grim and unpleasant. It's possible that I'm doing him a grave injustice and that he is actually a very nice bloke, but I've never really had the urge to find out. As God's people, as his children, our appearance, and by appearance I don't mean whether our hair is combed or not, but this whole package, our appearance shouldn't be scaring people off. Now, everybody has a bad day, so I, I'm not advocating a big false smile, no matter what the weather is, kind of lifestyle. But the permanent gloominess of Eeyore isn't what we should be known for either. Is God good? Yes. Do we have the sure and eternal hope of life with Christ? Yes. What? A manifold number of reasons we have to be found agreeable. To be a pleasure, to be around. What a great and pleasant witness we can give to the world then if we choose to shine the light of our Father. Today's text has shown us that the nature and character of God is radically different to that of the enemy, Satan. It's just as opposite as, it, as opposite can be. Pick any comparison you can, you can find here on earth. Black and white, day or night, fire and ice or whatever. All of them will only give us a glimpse of how large the real gap is between sinfulness and holiness. And although we might not fully understand that gap, we really do need to try to get our heads around it as far as we can. Because there is no grey space in between. You can either be saved and be a child of light, or you can be unsaved and a child of darkness. There is therefore no justification for for being either one of those in reality, but then trying to appear to look like one of the others or any portion of the others because you're only going to get the reward of whichever one is your true master. No one exists in twilight or gets left there when they die. Our call is clear then and our time is short. 
We do not know when the Lord will call our number. If we claim the name of Christ, then we are remade as light in him. Walk then as children of that light. I want to close now with a passage from Romans 13. And do this, knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfil its lust. Walk in the light, friends. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see your light. And give us the courage to walk in it, to reflect it, to shine it, to be your example to the world around us. Thank you, Lord, for the power and beauty of that light. And thank you, Thank you, Lord, that you did not keep it to yourself, but you have shared it so freely. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And our song today, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Let's stand and sing.
Let it be a sweet, sweet sound. Let it be. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Go with us, Lord God. May we be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. May we walk in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And we have tea and coffee out the back. And uh, mix and mingle.